If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. So what are the things that value... My goodness, I'm getting my tongue tied already. What are the things that you value most in this life right now? Is it your family? Your career? Maybe the house that you live in? For some of us, maybe it's our health. Many disciples of Christ say that Jesus matters the most to them. But if you were to look at what grabs their attention every week, Jesus, as revealed in the Word of God, is rarely found. The opportunity to talk to the Heavenly Father is viewed as something we just do before a meal or before going to bed. It's just tradition. Got to do it. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is often ignored and many times quenched, leaving the disciple to their own devices that fail them. You say, today we're going to be looking at the value of the gospel through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, a man who didn't care who was around when he shared the, his testimony and his desire for others to have the gospel for themselves. That's what mattered to Paul. We're going to be looking at four things this morning. Number one in his testimony, opposed to Christ, verses 1 through 11. Number two, met by Christ, verses 12 through 18. Number three, living for Christ, verses 19 through 23. And number four, testifying of Christ, verses 24 through 32. Let's start with number one, opposed to Christ, verses 1 through 11. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in, in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. As we continue here in the book of Acts, we know that King Agrippa is brought in here to determine what is it that Paul is really guilty of by Festus. Paul essentially here is not on trial as he presents his defense, but ultimately goes to stand trial before Caesar later on. And right now, that's the higher authority that he's appealed to, which explains why his defense here is more of a sharing of a testimony rather than a normal defensive posture that Paul would take. His goal here is more to win Festus and Agrippa to Christ as he knows he's safe until he's brought to Caesar. I think for so many of us, knowing the freedoms that we have in America, it's amazing that we do not use them to our advantage to share the gospel. I mean, with the opportunities that we have in our nation, you would think we would be the most apt to share. But many times, under pressure, the church tends to do more. When there's pressure, that's when the church wants to share the gospel. When there's no pressure, the church cools off. It's not as serious of a, a situation. The gospel, for some reason, doesn't resonate as much. In America, it seems that there are a lot of things that are shifting rapidly, if we were to pay attention. So many of us, though, are leery to share the gospel with others 
or even share our own testimony, how it is that Christ has worked in our own lives. Of all the times we should be bolder, it's when death is mentioned everywhere on every television set. This would be the time that we should be the most bold to share the gospel because we have the one that conquered death. We have the one that is the resurrection and the life. And unfortunately, we're just as scared as the rest. Unfortunately, we're just as terrified of COVID as everyone else is, for the most part. Obviously, there are a few that could care less, and they're almost careless to the extreme. That's not what I'm promoting. Every single day, our media implies what's going on is dangerous. And the church does not respond with a greater danger, eternal condemnation. We already have a greater authority looking out for us, church. That's Jesus Christ. The greater authority is much greater than the government. Jesus reigns over all. We are already secure eternally, church. So I I hate to break the, the news here. Don't look to government to save you. They will fail you every time. Jesus saves, and it's confirmed. You don't have to to worry about it. It's settled once and for all. Paul starts off by building up King Agrippa as an expert in these matters of customs and the matters of the Jewish faith. The benefit for Paul here is that he's speaking to one who is familiar with where Paul is coming from and the type of accusations the Jews would have hurled, hurled at Paul. What's interesting is Paul recalls his upbringing in the Jewish community how he was brought up a strict Pharisee and still believed in the resurrection of the dead. Although the difference for Paul is now he believed in Jesus, the one who conquered sin and death. The one who was raised from the dead himself. In fact, Paul in his current state of converted Pharisee, I I want you to remember this, that Paul is a converted Pharisee. It's not that all the things that he was taught have now been eliminated, and let's forget it. There are a lot of tendencies that we all have that we don't get away with after we become believers of Christ. It's not as if we start with a complete blank slate in our minds and all the bad habits, all the things that we've thought of, all the things we've learned just completely dissipate. We still have them. And some of those proclivities that we have, let's say if we were brought up in a very strict Christian home of being legalistic, are still there. Or let's say we were brought up in a home that was very lenient on the Word of God and very open to all sorts of debauchery. Those things are still there. Paul understands that he's standing before King Agrippa who can understand where he's coming from. In fact, Paul, who is a converted Pharisee turned Christian apostle, recalls his own persecution of Christians. He remembers when he was on the other side of the fence, the one as opposed to Christians as these Jews were to him. Don't let it shock you, believer, that some of the strongest opponents of the gospel can be the strongest proponents of the gospel. And unfortunately, I think many that grow up in a Christian home, and I struggle with this person because I was, what tends to happen is we take it for granted. We don't see the opposition to God as somebody that vehemently opposes the gospel. And I mean pursuing people that oppose, that promote the gospel to the point of death. Paul disdained Christianity to the point of wanting to kill Christians. I don't think we let that sink in sometimes. We read these stories in Scripture and it's, oh yeah, you know, Paul, he's converted, he's a great apostle. He's a murderer of Christians turned apostle. He hated what Christians stood for. I want you to take the most hateful atheist that you know in America And I want you to think of them despising everything you and I believe. 
and the gospel changing their heart, and you're just shocked that that person now is on your side of the argument now. This same Paul is now opposed the very same way that he opposed others. They hate him just as passionately as he disdained other believers. Paul admits to pursuing with a passion Christians to the point of signing off on their torture and death. Paul was not guiltless. He tortured them and persecuted them to the point of having them renounce their faith in Christ. That's what's implied here. Paul completely understood where the Jews were coming from. But he also understood that the law as currently written still gave him some options in appealing to Caesar. Look, we all had a past before Christ. Some consider theirs more horrific than others. But needless to say, the past when we were opposed to Christ was a life opposed not only to the truths of Scripture, but also in some sense opposed to those who shared those truths with us. I need you to understand, believer, that when you and I were apart from Christ, we didn't just oppose him, we opposed those that brought him to us. And though many times people say, you know what, the world likes us. The world loves everything that we're telling them. Those are the Christians that haven't made a stand on Scripture. In fact, you need to ask yourself what may seem to be a difficult question. Has there been a change in how you viewed other followers of Christ before accepting Him by faith and pledging your allegiance to Him? You see, one of the biggest shifts of a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, was their allegiance changed to Him and His followers. You changed your family from the power of darkness and Satan to now family and the child of God. I don't think we understand and grasp this sometimes, church. There's some serious things that happened when the gospel affected us. And yet so many Christians want the world to love them. You're not on their team. They're not on yours. What are you trying to cater to them for? Jesus would be ashamed of what many churches do today in trying to reach the world. It's insulting to see that many churches will play Eye of the Tiger before worship sets in order to get people into the service. It's insulting that many churches will do all sorts of things, have a carnival before church so people come out for service. All of those things are fine and dandy as long as you're not using them and abusing the gospel. Everything has its place. But syncretism has destroyed the church. Syncretism is when you mix the world with the worship of Messiah and you twist it and you manipulate it for your own means. And one of those means is, let me just grow the church, I don't care which way we do it. Which is why many churches today, if you strip them of the wonderful worship experience, people wouldn't attend. If you took away their activities that they do every month, they wouldn't attend. Jesus isn't enough in many churches. Jesus is really not the cornerstone, he's just another brick in the wall for them. Pardon the Pink Floyd analogy. It's unfortunate. But that's how low we've come as a church. One of the marks of conversion is a love for the brethren, church. And it's something that simply cannot be avoided in Scripture. John 13, 35 says this, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love... For one another. 
Faithful disciples of Jesus connect with other faithful disciples of Jesus. They don't ask for the world's permission. They don't ask for the world's approval. They want others that will motivate them to love Jesus the way they ought to. They don't care that their buddy at work is a cool guy. They want what Jesus wants. And they find other believers that want the same thing. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says this, He who says he is in light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Why do so many Christians love the world more than their own brethren? Makes you wonder where their allegiances are. You pledge to Christ, yet you want the world? You pledge to follow Him faithfully, but you prefer the world to approve of what you live? Which is unfortunate because many churches today that do not preach the Word of God directly and correctly will approve of all sorts of things that Jesus absolutely died on the cross to save from. It's blasphemy what churches promote today, intolerance. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, this would be the amplified version, that is, you who are responsive to the guidance of the Spirit are to restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness, not with a sense of superiority or self-righteousness. I'm not helping you because I think I'm better than you. Are we getting it, church? Keeping a watchful eye on yourself. Let's apply the scripture correctly. So that you are not tempted as well. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the requirements of the law of Christ. That is the law of Christian love. For if anyone thinks he is something special, when in fact he is nothing special except in his own eyes, he deceives himself. But each one must carefully scrutinize his own work, examining his actions, attitudes, and behavior. And then he can have the personal satisfaction and inner joy of doing something commendable without comparing himself to another. For every person will have to bear with patience his own burden of faults and shortcomings for which he alone is responsible. It's amazing how many Christians want to go save their brethren when they've got glaring flaws in their own life they don't want to take care of. Church, we need to be very careful that we're not trying to find all the chinks in everyone else's armor and absolutely ignoring the gaping hole in our own inconsistencies. A big mark of opposition to Christ was an opposition to the gospel message and to those that are disciples of Christ. Now, we're not talking about false teachers or those would not be rebuked by Paul himself. That's not what we're talking about here. Paul's own words to those types of people would have been out of line if that's what he meant here, but that's not what he meant here when he said that he opposed those that preached the gospel. And that now the gospel has changed his heart for his brethren. Paul's life in opposition to Christ was one of opposition to the people of God. Just like yours and I are. Until we meet Christ, we have the same view of the church. Number two is met by Christ, verses 12 through 18. While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, the language of heaven is Hebrew now. There you go. These are proof texts. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul recalls the conversion experience and how he himself was confronted by Christ. Through a shining light blinding him and those around him. Calling him out in Hebrew. What language will we speak in heaven? It's Hebrew, according to this text. Probably. Jesus confronts Paul for his opposition to him. So wait a second. Paul persecuted Christians, and Jesus is calling him out for persecuting him. That's how personally Jesus takes when people do something to his own. I want you to understand, church, Jesus doesn't need defending, but he will absolutely defend us. He's got our back. Even those people like Stephen that were stoned, you've got to remember this. This is one of the most fascinating things in all of the book of Acts. Jesus stands before Stephen's death. What an incredible testimony. Jesus standing as he's about to call his child home. What they thought was a loss was a victory to Christ. Church, do not think that difficulty and hardship from persecution is a loss. It is a win for Christ. And that well done from him matters way more than the attaboy here on this earth from the world. Remember what scripture says, Jesus himself says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You can have everything on this earth. But you lose your own soul, it's worthless. Worthless. And unfortunately, a lot of people exchange a lot of things for their soul. Essentially, the world will hate most the brethren who are most faithful to Christ. Take it to the bank. The world will hate most the brethren who are most faithful to Christ. Take that to the bank. If you, if you preach the exclusivity of the gospel and only Jesus saves, expect opposition. Now, if you're one of those wishy-washy types that goes, you know, there are many ways to get to heaven. You'll be accepted by all sorts of other people. They'll join, you can join their club anytime you want. You're so tolerant. You've denied the gospel. You've really denied your Lord if you're a follower of Christ. Makes you wonder if you've even trusted him. He's not that exclusive to you. If you believe that scripture is infallible and trustworthy, that it's not just a good book with good instructions for life, expect opposition. When somebody says, you know, you really believe this is the very word of God? Yes, I do. Expect opposition. Aren't you kind of crazy to believe that? Like, don't you know a bunch of different people wrote those books? How could you believe the Holy Spirit inspired that? Expect opposition. If you're calling out what Scripture calls sin, killing of the innocent, the unborn, calling out sexual immorality, Expect opposition, church. You need to understand that the more and more the church stands for what Scripture says, the more opposition it should realize is coming their way. We've had it so good in America because it really was founded on many people that feared what God actually said in His Word, even if they didn't really believe it. Many of the founding fathers, though they were deists, they still had a reverence and a respect for the things that were here. 
Culture shifted on that church. It's not the same. There's been a lot of changes in the last few years. If you're stating that no one is good apart from God, and the universality of the good of man is not true, expect opposition. How dare you tell me that I'm a sinner? How dare you tell me that I'm somehow an enemy of God? Expect opposition, church. And don't you dare buy into the garbage that we're all children of God. It's one of the most blasphemous statements churches make. Disregarding entirely the spiritual warfare that goes on. And the fact that there are those that are blinded by the prince of darkness, Satan himself. We're not all on the same team. We're not in the same family. That's why we need to be adopted. That's why Christ adopts us into his family by faith. One of the key marks of true Christianity and the false pretense is how much it is loved by the world. If a church is loved by the world, it is already in serious danger because of the compromise it's made. Many churches no longer proclaim the exclusive claims of Christ. And in their compromise, they've sold out the gospel for a lie. Which is why I, I strongly disdain, and I mean this word strongly myself, I disdain when people use manipulative tactics to get somebody to raise their hand that they've trusted Jesus. This I see your hand, brother or sister, with no follow-up of discipleship is antithetical to Scripture. I don't disregard the fact that some people may be saved, even though those methods are flawed, but many times what happens is there's no follow-up. There's no following up with that believer to now disciple them into maturity. And many times you've given people a false hope of salvation. When Paul was confronted by Christ, his whole perspective changed. He no longer wanted to persecute Christians, but rather to share with others Jesus himself is the way. I oppose the way, I believe he is the way now. Paul's whole life goal changed in that moment. That was his defining moment. There's actually a song, and I was working through this sermon. The song is written by a new song, which is actually titled Defining Moment. And here are some of the lyrics from this song that I thought were apropos to what Paul recalls here. Here's what it says. When you believe he's all you need, that will be your defining moment. As you live your life walking in his light, Trusting him completely, that will be, that will be your defining moment. You see, church, I think we walk away from that many times. Each one of us has that moment that Christ entered our life. And he's called us to something specific to us. The question is how many of us are living out that calling? Unfortunately, so many of us are blown away by faithful disciples like Paul. But we just don't have the same passion to live for Christ as he did. Number three, living for Christ, verses 19 through 23. This is Paul speaking. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, 
and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Goodness, church, we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve any of this. And Paul goes, listen, I had this calling and I was obedient to what Christ had confirmed in my life. One word that separates Paul from many Christians that Christ calls is obedience. Many of us are disobedient. Paul understood that he had been called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's what it says, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Church, there are always works attached to general repentance. They don't qualify you to salvation, but there are evidences of salvation. For those that are religious and pretty good, lack lack of trust in themselves and away from any false piety or religious works to save them may be the evidence of fruit or that good work. To the person that's always been trusting their wonderful performance, the gospel says now. And that is evidenced in the way that person lives when the gospel touches them. To the one blatantly living in an openly sinful lifestyle, there's a change in their view of that open sin and a war takes place against that sin. That's the evidence of the good work. A war not declared against sin is usually a war still openly declared against God. Do you realize we do that, church? The very thing that Jesus rescues us from, we go back to ultimately spitting in his face. If you will, switching sides because it's more convenient that time. Thank you, Jesus, but I really don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to go ahead and give in to my flesh. I'm going to go give give in to the temptations around me. I'm going to go ahead and disregard what it is that you've really done in my life. A war not declared against sin is usually a war still openly declared against God. And unfortunately, many Christians are traitors. Jesus, who's always faithful, has us stab him in the back. We're just as bad as Judas. Even worse in some sense because he's actually redeemed us. And we still find it perfectly fine to disregard what he's done for us. Paul knew that this was the reason the Jews were angry at him because he had now called the Gentiles to repentance. And the gospel did not require that these Gentiles become practicing Jews. In conversion, which made Paul a blasphemer to them. Well, Paul, you didn't teach them that circumcision matters. You're going against your upbringing. How dare you? Paul was simply pointing out to the Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they had been practicing from the beginning. Everything that you've been practicing leads you to see that Jesus is a fulfillment. Everything, even up to the ceremonial cleansing that they would practice. And the washing away of our sins by the blood of Christ. The resurrection of Christ was an offense to the Jewish brethren, as many denied that it ever happened. Which is amazing, and I don't think many of us connect these dots, and this was when I was reading this, I'm like, wait, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Why would this not be a point to go, hey, I agree. I already believe that it's true. I have real evidence, disciples that have seen him. Now, no, will not believe that. I refuse to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. Even though everything in his life pointed to that and his resurrection confirms that. 
Paul continues testifying of Christ, even as he is interrupted here. Number four, testifying of Christ, verses 24 through 32. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see, Festus comes out and loudly interrupts Paul's testimony here. Paul's recalling of his own testimony. To Festus, all this stuff that Paul was sharing seemed like nonsense. Either that or he was getting convicted and he didn't want to hear any more of it. Paul, being an intellectual, really disturbed him that Paul would believe this stuff. Apparently, Festus was more than likely getting convicted and couldn't take it any longer. Especially Paul's stance on the resurrection of the dead. Paul is out of his mind to preach these things, having been a Pharisee, and now being a Christian and an apostle for Jesus Christ. Now, Paul responds with a clear-cut answer, stating that he has not gone insane, but rather speaks the rational truth. He also pivots to the one who is trying to get a better understanding. He pivots to King Agrippa here by appealing directly to him. This is where Paul gets Agrippa to see that his agreement with the prophets should help him see that Jesus is the Messiah. Church, the blindness that befalls the Jewish people is something that is supernatural, and that's why God has to break through it. Because it is already written down. There are plenty of evidences from the prophets of Jesus being the very thing they've been waiting for. And it should break our hearts for them and for the glorious gospel reaching us. We didn't deserve it. And unfortunately, we don't see the fact that many of us see some things clearly only because God showed us grace and mercy. We're no better than them. In fact, we're lower on the totem pole. God didn't choose us in Abraham originally. We were grafted in. We don't deserve any of those promises made to them, and especially the promise of the Messiah. But God cared enough for us to include us, to extend from their hardness grace to us. Don't look down on any Jewish person that does not see Christ for who he is, but rather break in your heart towards them, because you're no better than them, and you don't deserve Jesus. And Jesus was originally given to them. And your heart should break that you would want to reach them with the gospel. 
You see, King Agrippa's response is a politically correct response, which many that are not politicians do when it comes to the gospel. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost got me, Paul. Almost. What's amazing is Paul wants them to have what he has. Paul goes, listen, not just you, anybody that's listening, I want all of you to have what I have. Maybe accept these chains that I have on right now. I hope that every one of you has what I have. That's what Paul's saying there. You guys, I have something greater than all of you have. That is the Lord Jesus himself. And he's available to anyone that calls on his name. He wanted all of them to know Christ. Now, church, is that our heart? The people that we see, that we know are on their way to hell, is that our heart? Do we care enough that they don't know Christ? And see, some of you, you you have this perspective that you have to be this gospel minister and have a lot of the qualifications that Paul has, be a Pharisee, and then you can share the gospel. It's just not true. It's just not true. Not every person was an apostle that reached people for Christ in church history. Do we share with the same passion as Paul did that others would hear the gospel? Does it break our hearts that we know people that work around us, live near us, are in our families that don't know Christ? Now, church, here's here's the truth here. There is a lack of disciples of Christ who care to share him with others. And we lack the passion that we ought to have. Unfortunately, a lot of people like to cut corners just so they can get some kind of profession from somebody. Paul shares the gospel clear-cut. He does not mince words. He does not pivot to try to change the message itself. Paul relies on the sovereignty of God while at the same time sharing the gospel passionately. And church, we need to be able to do that. We need to be able to pray that God would stir people's hearts but passionately declare him to others. It's not either or, it's both. And unfortunately, many times, what many churches fall into is a dead Calvinism, which is just trusting God to do what he's going to do, and I get to just sit around and do nothing. And hope and pray that God reaches people. Unfortunately, the other side has a different problem, which is cutting corners and just getting some confession from people and not even relying on the sovereignty of God. John MacArthur says this, Paul's testimony contains two main themes. Jesus Christ's resurrection proves him to be the Messiah. And Paul's transformed life proves the reality of Christ's resurrection. He masterfully weaves the saving gospel through his first-person account. Listen, church, every single one of us that has trusted Jesus has a testimony. I don't care how young or old we are. And every single one of us has something that we can share with others that Jesus has done on our behalf. Unfortunately, a lot of churches think you have to do the Romans road or else you won't be able to share the gospel. I don't see Paul doing that here. And that's one of the reasons why some traditions are just traditions. They're mere opinions of men, and they're not founded in what Scripture actually lays out for us. Paul here is just going back, recalling what Jesus has done, his past life before Jesus, how Jesus met him, how he lived for him, and how right now he's still testifying of him. And Paul's going, I hope all of you have what I have. It's not the amount of money you have in the bank that matters at the end. Oh, it's good not to be broke. It's not the nice house that we live in that's going to matter at the end. 
It's not the wonderful clothes we bought our kids and the new Air Jordans every week that many parents try to keep up with somehow. It breaks my heart that so many of us have taken those nice things that God's given us and said, you know what, these matter more than him. And I'm one of them. I thank God more for the gifts than his son. Many times. I thank God for the good things he's done in my life, sometimes more frequently than the gospel itself. And I'm ashamed to admit that. What Jesus has done for us should matter if we are to share that with others. It doesn't matter in our hearts. If it doesn't matter in our hearts, it won't be shared. The reason we don't share the gospel is because it doesn't matter to us. Let's just put it like it is. If something is so important, it's so valuable to us, you're going to want to share that with other people. Why would you want to hold it for yourself if you've got something amazing you ought to share? Why are we so selfish with the most important message? What are we, part of some exclusive club? It's only us and no one else. It's a private secret cult. Garbage. This was to spread to all the world. Good news. The angel himself declares that in the New Testament as he's proclaiming the birth of Christ to all people. Jesus is born. The end result here is Agrippa comes right out and says, This man's done nothing deserving of death. And probably would have been able to be set free if he didn't appeal to Caesar. Now, we don't know how all that would have played out. Remember, the Jews still wanted to take him out. So it's a good statement here. And you you tend to read this and you go, man, Paul might have like completely avoided death and not gone to Rome. You're forgetting God's providence. Forgetting that God already had certain things determined for Paul. And that no earlier than when God proclaimed that he was going to be put to death, would he be put to death. Some of us are trying so hard to outsmart God's working in our lives. We try to cling to everything we can do. And you realize just at a moment's notice, things can change in our lives. You can't do anything about it. It should shock us, but I don't think it does many times. You have healthy people, healthy people that have dropped dead the last couple years from this COVID. Vaccinated and unvaccinated. Doesn't matter the status on that one. Things that stun the doctors and they don't know what to say. And yet here we are, supreme sovereigns of our own destiny, right? I know how I'm going to live my life. I know how it's going to end. No, you don't. It could end tomorrow. What are we kidding ourselves for? Did Paul make a mistake here by appealing to Caesar? I venture to say no, he did not. Because it all works according to God's providence. So in closing, church, how much do you value the gospel? How much do you value the gospel? Are you like Paul here? Does it matter to you that others hear of what Christ has done on your behalf? Look, if you're sharing some things with people that are outside the church, does Jesus ever come up? Or is it the stuff we like to talk about that everybody else in the world likes to talk about? Church, let me, let me put a bold statement out there. It's Christmas time. This is the time to share Jesus the most. It's in the Word. Of all times of the year that we should share Jesus, this is the time. 
family, friends, get-togethers, gifts, all those are good. They pale in comparison to him. And church, it depends on what we see and how we value it that others will see in us. You can't preach what you don't have. If you value Jesus, he's going to come right out. People are not going to be able to deny it. If Jesus is just an option and you don't care all that much, it's going to be obvious as well. Just because some of us have been trained, you have to do it this way or else you won't really be able to share the gospel. Let me tell you right now, you and I have a testimony and Jesus has affected our heart. And when someone finally goes, what is it that has made the difference in your life? You can then share what Jesus has done on your behalf. And it'll shock some people that it's as simple as placing your faith in Jesus. We overcomplicate the simplicity of the gospel. You know what's not complicated? The gospel. You know what's complicated? Living it out. The gospel's not complicated. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I place my faith in him. God changes me from the inside out. Now the hard work starts. And I need to fight sin actively in my life. You can easily weave the gospel into your testimony as Paul does here. If you're wondering how to do this, read through this text again for yourself. See how Paul pulls the gospel through his own testimony. See what Jesus has called you to. Continue to testify of the glorious benefit of being a disciple of Christ. Listen, church, I know it's shocking to say statements like this, and it's really unfortunate that many in the church don't believe it, but being a child of God is the greatest thing you and I have. Every parent should be more pumped that their, their children love Jesus than anything else they've done for them. You can get them all set financially, but they have no Christ, it doesn't matter. How cheap is the death of Christ that it's lost value in our own eyes? If you took everything else away, would you still appreciate what Christ has done on your behalf? I want you to take everything that you enjoy in this life, everything that I enjoy in this life, my family, my house, the job here that I have in this church, all the things that I enjoy in my life, I took it all away. Does it matter in comparison to Christ? And I'm talking the things that we enjoy. I'm not talking the things we dread and we don't like. It's easy to put those things aside. But the things that we enjoy, how much do we value Christ in comparison to them? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in closing, said this. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. 